Turn with me today to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. We'll be finishing out this chapter today, but it's, also, it's not only the end of chapter 8, but it's also an introduction to chapter 9. As we uh, go into chapter 9 next week and for the next several weeks, chapter 9 will be dealing a lot with more of Jesus' ministry and his healings, but also his calling of Matthew and different questions of fasting. But today we're looking at the close of chapter 8. And if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Hmm. Let's pray. Dear God, this final scene of Matthew chapter 8 is one of supernatural power. We saw in the previous passages where Jesus calms the storm of the waters, and now he's calming the soul of a demon-possessed group of men, two men. Dear God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is beyond who we could ever imagine him to be. And Lord, I pray today that you would show us in your word the supernatural power and authority that Jesus Christ has. And dear Lord, how does that work? How does that apply to us even today? What does this mean to look at this story to see that Jesus, with one word, casts out legions of demons? What can he do for us as well? Lord, open our minds through your spirit. Enlighten us to your word. This time is for you. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Let me see. As we complete chapter 8 of Matthew's gospel, I think it would be helpful to survey the chapter uh, up until this point. Let's just briefly, let's remind ourselves what Matthew chapter 8 tells us because Matthew presents Jesus and his authority here, right? Let's remember at the end of chapter 7, Jesus comes down from the mountain where he had taught about the kingdom of heaven in that great sermon on the mount. And as he comes down off of the mountain in beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, he comes and he heals a leper. In in verses 5 through 13 of chapter 8, Jesus heals the servant of the centurion, right? And then in 14 through 17, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and with that, many others come uh, for healing and also casting out of demons of family members and friends, and Jesus does all this with a word. And then, right before this text, 
verses 23 through 27, Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember our time in those passages, verses 23 through 27, this was no ordinary storm. The language in the Greek implies that this storm was a supernatural caused event in the natural, in the natural order. In other words, the, the waters and the winds and the storm comes up. There's a strong argument that this was Satan trying to stop Jesus. And this is why the sailors, the disciples in this boat were so terrified. They would have been accustomed to the storms of the day, and this one shook them to the core. And Jesus, with one word, says, stop. So Matthew reveals in these encounters uh, in chapter 8, he reveals to us through the physical and the material world that Jesus has authority over the natural. Why? Y'all remember? It's because Jesus is as the creator, God. Jesus is the same as God, the son of the father. And he was the one who was present at the beginning of all creation. We see this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Paul tells us, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So Matthew chapter 8 really shows us the truth of this doctrine, that Jesus is Lord over all things created, those things that are seen and those things that are unseen. Jesus is Lord and has authority over all of it. And we see these scenes in chapter 8, one healing after another, one miracle after another, shows us who Jesus is. Amen? you ever ponder that? Is Jesus just this good Bible character? Or is Jesus really who Matthew tells us he is? You see where we are? So in this final scene of the eighth chapter, we see that Jesus has authority over the supernatural as well as the natural. All of the miracles that were presented in chapter eight were mostly dealing with the natural. Yeah, here we are at the end, and now Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has authority even over the supernatural. Remember, the seen and the unseen. Amen? Are there, are there mysteries in our world that we cannot answer? Are there things that happen that we clearly see that we say, I have no idea what's going on here because there's no material or physical evidence, but it, something's happening. You ever been there? Jesus is going to show us here he has control even over those things. So, because here's, here's the thing. For Jesus, remember what his mission is. His mission is to redeem the earth and to reverse the curse of sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3. That's his mission. And for Jesus to do this, he would have to overcome and have total power over Satan and his demons, but he would have to do it in his human nature his human condition. Jesus is divine and human. Yet his human side is perfect. His divinity, clearly flawless. Jesus would have to show this power over Satan and the evil spiritual world in order to have the authority to actually redeem us. You see this? 
So this is not a test on Jesus. This is just one more example from Matthew's gospel of exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is not trying to prove to anybody who he is. Amen? That's the whole point of his authority. And we see evidence of who he is in these scenes. So here we see that Jesus' divine nature was always in power and over control of Satan and the evil spiritual world. Always was. Jesus never gave up his power over the demonic and evil spiritual world. Never. And he's showing it here. You see that? Now, there's a strong Jewish tradition that tells us of a spiritual battle or a spiritual war that began long before the first words were spoken by God in creation in Genesis chapter 1. Scholars and Jewish traditions seem to hint that that one verse, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That one verse, we don't know the exact timeline of how all that occurred. There was There is some spiritual evidence, some biblical evidence that there was this spiritual battle that occurred even long before Adam was created. We don't know the timeline. We just know something occurred in the spiritual. Some kind of a spiritual battle occurred. And God said, <laughs> see where we're going here? We know very little details of this eternal battle, but we do know this. There is a spiritual battle that still rages. It's still here. I'm not here to preach a sermon today to get you all spooked up about demons and spirits and, and, and the unseen. That's not the point of this text. But from the biblical accounts, we clearly know that there is a supernatural reality that is at war. We are just in the physical reality that we know. We're only conscious of and aware of the material world that we live in. We don't really see the unseen, but it's there. Amen? And so Jesus is showing us here that he's got power over all of this. He shows that his divine and his supernatural nature is truly in power and in control over even the supernatural unseen, just as he was truly in power over the natural world that we live in. He's over, he's the, remember, he's in charge of the heavens and the earth. So now we're going to see here Jesus' authority and his control over that which is unseen. Look here at Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Remember, they've, they've come across the Sea of Galilee here after leaving Capernaum, and they've encountered this supernaturally caused storm. Jesus has calmed those waters, and now they come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 28, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Anybody ever been around crazy people? Yeah, sometimes we're out on the roads and we say, you're crazy. And we grab that steering wheel and we want to run them down or we slam on the brakes or whatever. Like, crazy people are out there. I had an encounter last week on Highway 111. I'm coming down Highway 111 just under the speed limit but coming down Highway 111, and what does this 18-wheeler truck do? He's coming the opposite direction, and he decides to turn across Highway 111 in front of me and doesn't care that I'm there at all, and I slam on the brakes, and I lay down a lot of rubber on the road, fishtail it, trying to keep from hitting him. Crazy people are out there. 
Amen? But these folks, these demon-possessed men, they were crazy. They were nuts. You see here in verse 28, and when he came to the other side, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. How is it described? So fierce that no one could pass that way. That right there tells you exactly the nature of the satanic spiritual war that we are dealing with. There is, there is evil opposition to the gospel. There is evil opposition. In this text, we see evil opposition to Jesus himself. And we're going to unpack this today. As Jesus and his disciples come across the Sea of Galilee, they do arrive at this small town. And the text tells us that this small town is called Gerasa. And it tells us this is the country of the Gadarenes. Now, in Luke's account, we see uh, that it's called the, the Gerasenes. Um, and they, they were the inhabitants of this region called Gadara. Okay? This place was a part of a region known as the Decapolis. You read that often in the, stack, in the New Testament. The Decapolis was this region east of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan that was the ten cities. That's what Decapolis means. Mostly Gentile Greek-controlled regions, but you also had Jewish people living in amongst them as well. So this is the reason that we, we look at this. Why is Jesus coming here? This place was a part of this Gentile area, but there was clearly Jewish people living here too. So what is this area called the country of the Gadarenes? this small town called Gerasa. Scholars think that, and, and there's pretty good evidence here, that this is probably the region that the tribe of Gad settled in. If you remember, and if you're taking notes, you can look this up in Joshua chapter 13, where the, the inheritance is given, where Moses gives the inheritance to the tribe, to the different tribes of Reuben and to the Gadites, um, and and it's just a description of where they settled. They settled east of the Jordan. They would not come across the Jordan, but it was still part of the promise that was given to them. So it's possible, very strong possibility, that these were descendants of the tribe of Gad. Now, what else do we know about the tribe of Gad? You remember that when the northern and the southern kingdoms split after Solomon? There were ten tribes that were lost. Ten tribes of God's original tribes of Israel. Ten tribes were lost. The tribe of Gad was in that ten tribes. Very possible that this region could have been, very strongly could have been, descendants from that. Now, why is this important? Because this is also clearly a Gentile region. Over the generations, Jewish people from the tribes of Israel who were lost would intermingle and marry and the religions would be watered down and mixed. This is what was going on in this region. So here's Jesus. He has a purpose. Very clearly, as Jesus leaves Capernaum to go here, he's just not wandering on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee for just for pleasure. Like this morning, as I'm getting here this morning at 8 o'clock, what's going up north on Highway 111? Six, it was like a convoy of trucks pulling their boats heading to the lake. That's not what this was. This was not some pleasure trip on the lake. Jesus had a purpose. He was coming here to meet these demon-possessed men to tell them who he was. You see where he's at? So what's going on here? Two demon-possessed men. Now, 
Mark's account in Mark chapter 5 and Luke's account in Luke chapter 8, they, they tell us that there was only one man that Jesus interacted with, whereas Matthew's account mentions two. Now, you would say, now, this must be two separate events or this is a contradiction in the Gospels. Not exactly. You have to think about literary structures here. Just because Matthew mentions two and Mark and Luke only mention one doesn't mean that there's a conflict. It could be that there were two men and Mark's account and Luke's account only deals with the one that maybe Jesus talked to one-on-one. We don't know. Either way, it's true. But Matthew mentions here two. Now, we got to understand here something about demon possession. Let me help you understand the biblical understanding of demon possession, okay? This is important. In the Old Testament tradition, and even somewhat in the ancient pagan traditions, they, there was some crossover here as the understanding of who demons were. There were four different ways to see this, four different types of demons out there. There are the natural spirits, these nature spirits, who would inhabit undesirable places like deserts, uh, city ruins, uh, cemeteries. Remember, we have this same feeling now when we go to these kind of places. They're spooky. Okay, that's, that's not un, that, there's a reason for that. It's because demons like to hang out there. <laughs> okay, and so we even see here these two demon-possessed men. Where were they coming out of? They lived in the tombs. They lived in the graveyard. This is where demons like to go. They like to go to the undesirable places. That's what these natural spirits are. And a lot of this is left over from the pagan, anim, the animistic religions, these, this worldview that spirits inhabit the planet, or the, the plants and the trees and the rocks. That's, that's a pagan idea. So that's where a lot of this demon understanding comes from. There's another type of demon that we think, that we read about in scripture, and, and these are directly what we now refer to as the pagan gods. In other words, uh, Jewish tradition would take pagan gods and understand them by degrading them to the rank of demon, which they are. When we look at pagan deities, when we look at mythologies, really you could say what, what these pagan religions were doing, they were worshiping demons and not realizing it. That's very biblical as well. Thirdly, we have evil spirits that are sent directly by Satan or by God himself. We even see this in Scripture, that God will send evil spirits to do his work and still hold the evil spirits accountable for their evil. He does that. God is sovereign. He does. He's in control of the evil, and he's in control of the good, but he does not create the evil, but he does use the evil for his glory, right? And if God sends evil spirits, he's using the evil spirits to tempt or to punish. If Satan sends the evil spirits, he's clearly sending them to test. Satan does not have the authority to punish, but he does try to test us, doesn't he? Fourthly, there are demons that we know of in Scripture that are fallen angels or angels that are liable to the fall of, of the original Genesis curse. So the new, but, but that's the Old Testament understanding of demons, and that's part of what we're dealing with here. I think what we're dealing with here is what would be understood as the natural demons, uh, the nature demons, the ones that would possess things and people. So it's very evident. I mean, we can't just ignore this. I know we're in a modern age of science and, and enlightenment who kind of diminishes the demonic, but they're out there. They are still at work. 
But Jesus has clearly crushed the head of the serpent, and he said, I'm in control. Amen? The New Testament does not generally distinguish the differences here between these different types of demons. Generally, when the New Testament is speaking about demons, the New Testament doesn't really define categories, but but there's a general term and understanding of just evil spirits. All demons are just evil spirits. That's an all-encompassing category in the New Testament. So attention is focused in the New Testament on those who are demon-possessed at being filled with unclean spirits, and Jesus heals them. And even the apostles cast out demons too. But when you notice the difference between how Jesus does it in the New Testament and the way that the prophets do it and the apostles do it, I'm sorry, the apostles do it in the, in the rest of the New Testament, the, the, Jesus just speaks a word. And we're going to see this here. He tells this, these, these demons, you go, just go, one word. The apostles, when they cast out demons, they are doing so in the name of Jesus Christ. And sometimes they may actually have a battle going on before it's successful, (laughs) a battle of prayer and a battle of wits. We see that. But these demons, they drive their victims to madness. When we read about people who are demon-possessed in the New Testament, every single time these victims, these poor souls, are actually driven to madness, insanity. Now, in our modern day, this is, this is why it's important for us to see here. The New Testament encounters with demons related to mental disease or madness. This is important. This is not just simply anxiety or mental confusion. This is something that is clear insanity. This is why I would argue that it's important to dwell upon this in our modern day because we are so bombarded with psychiatric analysis and medication. I am a firm believer that medication is not the cure for mental instability. Medication is not the answer. Here's why. Jesus understands the source of mental instability, and mental chaos. I'm talking about to the level of insanity. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about to the level of somebody needs to be put in an institution. That's the level of insanity we're talking about here with demon possession. It's not a chemical imbalance. It's not whatever their childhood was or some wartime trauma. All of that stuff definitely contributes to mental instability. If you've been in combat, if you've had some kind of traumatic disorder, some kind of a lifetime trauma, that can clearly affect your mental acuteness. It can clearly affect who you are. But I would ask as Christians, we have to ponder if our minds are running in chaos, is there some demonic activity trying to unseat us? The child of God, the one who is bought by Christ and his blood, who is filled with the spirit of Christ, has everything necessary to stand up against this kind of assault. Matter of fact, if the spirit of Christ is truly dwelling within the believer, there's actually no more room for Satan to dwell. Period. Amen? There is no room for Satan and his demons to dwell within the mind and the heart of a true, genuine believer in Christ who is fully transformed in the image of Christ. 
There is no room there. So what we see here about these men, they are clearly crazy. They're mad. Now again, we're not talking about a chemical imbalance of material beings. See, if the answer to this situation for these men... See, in our modern day, somebody would grab these men and and, and take them to a hospital and give them drugs. Why? Because in our modern day, everything is material. Everything is chemical. We don't focus on the spiritual. And so the answer to all of our woes is a pill. Now, if all we are is physical, chemical beings, then a pill should solve all of the problems. But clearly it doesn't. We are human beings made in the image of God. We are made both physical and spiritual. There are two parts of our nature. We are both physical beings and spiritual beings. We have an eternity ahead of us. And so when we're dealing with demon possession here, I'm going to argue that to this level of insanity, these demon-possessed men, we're dealing with a spiritual issue. And the only answer to that is Jesus Christ. I'm a firm believer in this. I'm a firm believer that medication is not the answer. Jesus here understands the source of mental chaos. It's satanic in nature. Medication heals the physical. Jesus heals both the physical and the spiritual. Amen? Amen? Jesus does. Now, we've got to think here about the mind of Christ. When we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read in verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Anyone who has the mind of Christ, there's no more room for demonic activity. Because that's where the demons come in. They'll come in through our thoughts. Satan will attack us subtly through our mind. And it's very subtle. It's not anything that's aggressive to the point that we stand up and say and scared about it. It's a very subtle, gradual thing that comes into our mind. I would argue that these demon-possessed men did not just wake up one day in mental illness. It grew. They were not, they were not, they didn't begin in, in chaotic living. It probably came in subtly, one step at a time gradually giving up any ideas of of the Lord, of the Lord's ways. They embrace the world. They embrace the secular. They embrace things subtly, little by little, to the point that the demons possess them fully, to the point that they were living in the graves. They were living in caves out in the cemetery. Luke's account tells us that they were unclothed. They were that crazy. And they were attacking Jesus here in verse 28. When he comes up out of the boat and he comes up on the shore, they meet him on the road and they would not let him pass. That is the war that we're dealing with here. Let's look here at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These are the words of demons. They recognize Jesus the minute he shows up. What are you doing here, Jesus? They knew him. Why are you here? Are you here to torment us? Are you, are you here to torment us before the time? Now, that's a very important line here. If you're taking notes, underline that in verse 29. 
Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's a clear indication and a clear sign of what I mentioned earlier uh, this morning, that Jesus was present at the very beginning of all creation. He was there at the, during the spiritual battle that occurred in the cosmos. These demons would have known who he was. They would have known their end. And they know that in the very end, Jesus the King will torment them and send them into the fiery pit of hell. Jesus, are you here? It's not time yet, (laughs) right? Now, Luke chapter 8 is the account there. We're going to look at that here in a little bit. But in Luke chapter 8, verse 10, we know that this is not just one demon. It is a legion of demons, and, Christ, and they knew Christ because Jesus was present at their creation. He was present at their, even at their initial judgment when they were expelled from heaven. We can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 28, if you're taking notes. Ezekiel's prophecy retells the origin of the fall of Satan and his demons. It's there. Now, when we look at Matthew chapter 25, we understand what this final judgment is that these demons are talking about before the time. They're looking at the final judgment. They know there will be a final judgment. In Matthew 25, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Matthew 25's account of the final judgment involves even casting Satan and his demons into the fire, into the lake of fire. Look, perhaps these legions of demons, here's what's interesting. These legions of demons, they may not have thought that the Son of God would come in two stages, right? Jesus comes first, and then there is a second coming of Christ in the final judgment, isn't there? These demons didn't think that was going to happen. They thought when he showed up the first time, that was it. That's why the question is here. They didn't realize that Jesus would establish his kingdom now and then there would be an eternal judgment later. Let's look here at at, at verse 30. Let's look further a little bit more. It's interesting that once these demons confront Jesus, look at how he answers. Verse 30. Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. Verse 31. And the demons begged him, saying... Notice there, demons have to beg Jesus. That shows you how much authority he's got. See that? And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. It's interesting that uh, when somebody evil does something wrong and they realize, they're at least honest about it, and when the authority of Christ confronts them, they understand their place, they'll negotiate, Right? Anybody here ever negotiate with their parents when they got in trouble? I'm not saying that you're a demon, but I'm saying you understand the negotiation. You understand, you see what I'm saying? You understand the, the, the punishment that's to come. When you are guilty, you'll negotiate. Let's not let the penalty be as bad as what I think it's going to be. Can we do it a little bit easier? Can we do it a little bit softer? You see how the demons are talking to Jesus? They're trying to negotiate with him. Now, the evidence here, let's think about it. There, There's pigs nearby. The evidence of the swine nearby, I think, on the road leading up from the Sea of Galilee, I think this indicates that the area may have been predominantly Gentile, or at least Gentile in influence. It's also widely speculated that Jewish families did live in this area. So that's why I'm saying this area was, was not pure in, in the Mosaic law. It was mostly Gentile 
uh, influence and Jewish families there. If these two men were Gentile, then they would have clearly been outside of the Mosaic Covenant. But if these men were somehow connected to the Jewish tradition of the tribes of Israel living in this region, then they would have been in error living amongst the Gentiles and embracing Gentile traditions like swine. You kind of see where the demon possession may have come? Outside of the covenant, ignoring God's commands and His law? You see where this originated from, even in the culture, verse 31. As these demons negotiate with Jesus for their end, right? Verse 31, where they say, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. This clearly shows Jesus' authority over the supernatural. These demons understood it. They knew their fate. They knew their inferiority to Christ. They knew their final destiny in eternal fire. Matthew 25, verse 41 that I mentioned earlier, then he, being Jesus, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the final judgment for the goats in the Matthew 25 accounts. Those who Christ does not know. We will be cast into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels, the demons. These demons knew their end. There was an eternal fire and torment coming. Revelation chapter 20 actually gives us even more clear uh, understanding of this if you're taking notes. Verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 20 speaks about an angel who comes from heaven to bind Satan for a thousand years in the bottomless pit or the abyss that Luke's, <coughs> that Luke's account mentions in this story. But in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, this says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. This is after the thousand-year reign, and this is the final judgment. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is what these demons knew. They knew that they would be tormented forever and ever in the eternal fire. This bottomless pit, this, this abyss. And who is doing the tormenting? The Lord God Almighty, through His Son, Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the one who passes judgment. So eternity in eternal fire. You see who's in control even of that? There is no separation here of God over here and Satan over here. God is even in control of that torment. And the demons knew it. But look here at verse 32. This one verse, verse 32, is so profound. And then Jesus responds to these demons, verse 32, and He said to them, what? Go. No debate. No negotiation. No even hint of offer of salvation for these demons. Go. That's the power of Christ. You see that? Go. Jesus accomplishes this healing of these demon-possessed men without hocus-pocus, no magical formula, no incantations whatsoever, no ceremony, just go. These demon-possessed men, Luke's account tells us in verses 30 through 31 that the name of these demons was legion, implying that they were possessed by hundreds of demons. 
One word. Go. That's powerful. You see the impact here? No wailing or weeping in prayer before the Lord. Go. That's the power of our Lord. Now ponder this for a minute. Jesus met these men on the shore as he's coming out of the boat and they attack him. They try to stop him. And when they realize who he is, they realize their fate. And they they even ask, send us into the pigs. And Jesus answers them, go. Let's finish in verse 32. So they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now the response of the herdsmen, somebody was in charge of these pigs. They weren't just wandering around wild. Somebody was in charge of them. In verses 33 through 34, we see the response. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everyone, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Notice this, if, if... if you're a Gentile, even if you are a lost tribe of Gad who is now living more like a Gentile, they were in shock. Their livelihood was gone. Imagine that. Jesus shows up and destroys their business. Not only does he heal the demon-possessed men, he's also passing judgment on these perhaps descendants of the tribe of Gad. You're not supposed to be dealing with pigs anyway. I'm going to cast them into the sea for you. (laughs) You see, he's even passing judgment there. While the Jewish tradition of the Old Testament prophets, here's a, they, they would honor those who conducted miracles. The Old Testament prophets would say, if there was a miracle that occurred, God must have been in charge of it. And they would honor that miracle. But you see the response here of these herdsmen. They clearly did not honor this miracle. It's a contrast, which, which I think clearly shows more of a, a pagan influence here than ever. The Gentile Greek traditions would actually categorize miracle workers as, here's a big word, malevolent. In other words, intended to do, if you were a miracle worker, you were there to do harm. And so that's why I think the reaction here of these of the, of the townspeople as they come out to meet Jesus, that actually shows even further how far away they were from the Lord. If they had recognized the miracle as what it was, they would have bowed at the feet of Jesus, but instead they saw it as something evil itself. But notice here the response of the men. In contrast to these Gentiles, the, the, these, these, these pig farmers... They rejected him. They rejected Jesus. They rejected the Son of God. They pushed him away. They ran him away from their community. Why? Because he disturbed their comfort zones. He disturbed what they felt was their salvation. Their salvation was in pig farming. Their salvation was probably in pagan deities and pagan worship, a culture and a religion that probably had nothing to do with God itself, didn't even resemble anything godly. And they rejected Christ. Yet we have to notice here that Jesus is not in this place to call these Gadarenes, these pagans, into the kingdom directly. Why was Jesus here? He was there to heal these demon-possessed men. Turn with me to Luke's account, Luke chapter 8. We're going to close with this. Luke chapter 8. 
beginning in verse 34. This is Luke's account. We get more insight here as to the reaction from these pig farmers. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Verse 35. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice the difference here between the reaction of the, of the demon-possessed man and the citizens of the city. The demon-possessed man who was demon-possessed, who was no longer demon-possessed, how did he respond to Jesus? Sitting at his feet, worshiping, listening, being loved upon and ministered by the Son of God Himself. You see that? But these other pig farmers, the city dwellers who met Him out there, they rejected Christ. Verse 36, And those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Verse 37, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned back to Galilee. See, Jesus doesn't waste his time with those who reject him, who will not listen to his message, who do not want any, any part of his salvation. Jesus doesn't waste his time. He was there for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to heal a demon possession. Look here in verse 38 and 39 of Luke's account. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So we see here in Luke's account even deeper what Jesus' mission was here. Not only to cast out demons, but to establish an evangelist for the gospel in this region. Amen? I see some people smiling, some people, what? You see the point here? Isn't that exciting? Jesus heals demon possession. The man whom he heals from demons wants to go with him and follow him back to Galilee. And Jesus says, no, you've got a bigger purpose. I want you to stay here and proclaim the gospel. Tell everybody what has happened here. Tell everybody what I have done for you. In this morning in the men's uh, discussion, I I overheard a conversation about what is the gospel. It's interesting that the Lord ties all this together because here's what the gospel is. The gospel simply is this, proclaiming the good news. That's the gospel. We proclaim what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. We proclaim who Jesus is. He is the Savior of all sinners. He's the one who casts out demons. He's the one who heals the sick. He's the one who loves us enough to say, I have paid the price for your sin. That's the gospel. So here's my question, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Does this narrative, this story in Matthew's account and in Luke's account, does that shake you to the core? 
does it? Is there something in your life that you're wrestling with? I'm not saying is demon possession, but is there something in your life that you are struggling with? Are your thoughts not captive to Christ? Jesus. Jesus. He's the one who can clear those thoughts. He's the one who can take away all of those struggles. He's the one that stands up for us against all of these demonic and satanic powers. Let me emphasize here, I am not saying that all mental struggles are demon possession. I'm not saying that. But there is a level here in Scripture. There's clearly a level even in our modern age where people are demon-possessed. It's there. But if we are captive to sin, which all of us are, to some level we are under the control of satanic powers because that's kind of the root of the sin is that we've, we've turned away from God and actually given authority to Satan over this world. We've done it. And Jesus is here to redeem it back. Jesus comes to establish the kingdom of heaven to take back what Satan stole and what Adam and Eve willingly gave away. That's at the root of the gospel. In order for that to happen, the kingdom of heaven is established where? In the hearts and in the minds of all believers. The redeemed of the Lord, the children of God, are those whom Jesus has established the kingdom of heaven within. That's the gospel message. Are we truly a part of the kingdom? Has Jesus established the kingdom of heaven in us? If he has, and if we are truly in the kingdom, there is no room for Satan anymore. There's no room for the demons anymore. There's no room for the sin that we embrace and we are struggling with. That doesn't mean that it's gone like that with a finger snap. It means that we're dealing with it throughout the rest of our lives, and it is Jesus who is dealing with it alongside us and for us. This is part of where non-believers kind of get caught up. They say, well, if Jesus has done all this, why do we still struggle with sin? It's real simple. God is allowing us to still struggle with sin. He is allowing it. He's not causing it. He's allowing it so that we continually turn back to him and we depend on the Lord over and over and over and over. And we grow and we learn and we mature until we depend on him fully and even more so in eternity. Because and when we go to eternity with Christ, we have to depend on him forever. If we can't do that now, we'll never do it in eternity. But we cannot depend on Christ apart from his power and his strength and his grace. Amen? These demon-possessed men were healed of supernatural issues. Jesus is the Lord over the natural. He is the Lord over the supernatural. This demon-possessed man, Luke's account tells us, he was healed of demon possession for one purpose and one purpose only, 
to return to his home and be an evangelist, declaring how much God has done for him, how Jesus Christ has healed him. This man was instead to go back home and preach the gospel, proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ healed him and that Jesus Christ saved him. Amen? How many of us even think about that? Or have we become so complacent in our Christianity that we don't have a good news to proclaim? Ponder what Jesus is doing here. If we have been redeemed from our sin, oh, what a message. Oh, what a story. Who are you telling? (laughs) Are you excited about that? If not, I would say, let's do some prayer meetings and figure out what's going on and ask the Lord to stir up within us a genuine compassion for Him and go out there and proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world that's controlled by the devil. That's a good place for a hearty amen, by the way. There you go. Thank you, Carla. (laughs) See, the preachers need some engage. We need some interaction here with the congregation. Let me pray with you. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your great good news. Jesus Christ is your son who has all authority over the natural world and the supernatural world. He has authority over the seen and the unseen. He has so much power and authority. He can redeem us. And that, dear God, is the good news. And I pray, God, from your word today that you would remind us and go with us and excite us with this good news that we would proclaim it to all who would hear. Lord, this is a fallen world that right now is going farther and farther away from you and is falling deeper and deeper into despair. And dear God, the help and the only hope is your son, Jesus Christ. And dear God, you have given us that message. Thank you for that message. But oh, how scary it is, the responsibility to proclaim it. We need you. Help us, strengthen us, encourage us. Dear God, this time... This worship is for you. And we are going to transition now, Lord, into remembering your son, Jesus Christ, as we take communion together. Lord, use this time for your glory to remind us that Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who paid the price for our sin. He's the one who conquers all evil. And so, God, help us to remember that, to be humbled by that, to depend upon Christ, to believe in Christ, to run to you. Help us, Lord, at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.